Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important, peer-reviewed research and reviews from our October 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Treating older adults with antipsychotic medications has been linked to increased risks of stroke and premature death. Strong safety warnings caution against using antipsychotics, especially for aggression, agitation, and other behavioral symptoms of dementia. In this month's CME article, the authors conducted a study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health in which they analyzed a large national prescription database and focused on adults who filled antipsychotic prescriptions during the course of one year. The authors found that between ages 25 and 84 years, women had a higher rate of antipsychotic medication use than men. Antipsychotic use tended to increase when patients were in their early 20s until they were 54 years. It decreased until they were 66 years, then increased again to age 84. Approximately 2% of people who were 80 to 84 years used antipsychotic medications. The percentage of antipsychotic users with prescriptions from psychiatrists decreased with age. Two-thirds of young adults had prescriptions from psychiatrists versus only one-fifth of older adults. Dementia was diagnosed among nearly half of the antipsychotic-treated adults 80 to 84 years of age who had any mental disorder diagnosis. The authors conclude that high rates of antipsychotic treatment among older adults, together with common diagnoses of dementia, raise important quality-of-care challenges for clinical practice. These national prescription patterns underscore the importance of increasing access to behavioral management interventions for neuropsychiatric symptoms in older adults. The prevalence of obesity has reached epidemic proportions across the globe. The authors of this article, sponsored by the National Institute on Minority Health and Health disparities, present findings that add to the growing body of literature identifying a significant relationship between obesity and depression. The study sample consisted of 1,800 Mexican-American adults living near the United States-Mexico border. The authors measured for depression, including mild and severe forms, and used standardized techniques to assess for height, weight, waist circumference, and blood sampling. They also examined subjects for metabolic syndrome. Study results showed that being female, having a lower than high school education, and morbid obesity were significant risk factors for severe depression. The findings remain significant in multivariable models that control for potential confounding variables. In their examination of the relationship between metabolic syndrome and depression, the authors found that metabolic syndrome was not a predictor of depression. However, two subcomponents of metabolic syndrome, 
low HDL levels and increased waist circumference were significantly associated with mild depression. The authors conclude that obesity and associated conditions play a central role as risk factors for depression, especially among women. Clinically, these risk factors may serve as targets for early detection, prevention, and intervention. Future studies that examine the causal relationship between obesity and depression, as well as potential biological mechanisms, are warranted. Suicide is a major public health issue, with more than 38,000 deaths reported each year in the United States alone. As such, suicide prevention is of the utmost importance. Inconsistent detection and documentation of suicidal behavior within the healthcare system have significant consequences for suicide prevention, as missed or misclassified suicidal behavior may lead to inaccurate risk assessment and disposition. In this study, funded in part by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the authors compare the classification of suicidal behavior as documented by clinicians in three different psychiatric emergency departments with classification by a well-validated standardized suicide assessment. In the sample of 254 patients, the agreement between standardized and clinical classifications was substantial for both suicide attempts and non-suicidal self-injury. Importantly, 18% of patients determined to have made a suicide attempt by the standardized assessment were not classified as such in the clinical record. Study results suggest that although agreement between standardized and clinical assessment is generally good, the use of standardized measures may improve the sensitivity and accuracy of identifying suicidal behavior and non-suicidal self-injury in emergency departments, and therefore may lead to improved access to intervention. Smoking cessation programs generate large health gains at a low cost and are one of the most efficient ways of improving public health. Among persons with serious mental illness, smoking rates are still high. Compared to other smokers, those with serious mental illness are less likely to quit. Those who do quit are more likely to relapse. Since persons with mental illness have a lower quality of life and are more likely to die from causes other than smoking, the health gains from quitting are lower, and cessation programs that target this group may not be cost-effective. In a clinical trial funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, patients identified as smokers were randomized during psychiatric hospitalization. Participants received standard smoking cessation services or entered into the study cessation program. The program included one counseling session with three computer-aided assessments of readiness to quit. Those willing to quit received 10 weeks of nicotine replacement therapy. This program used about $1,300 in smoking cessation services to get an additional smoker to quit. The use of mental health services was not increased. The long-term model found that the program cost a little over $400 for each additional quality-adjusted life year realized. In the United States, 
Decision-makers regard any health care intervention that costs less than $100,000 per quality-adjusted life year as cost-effective. So this intervention was a highly efficient use of health care resources. Although trial participants had shorter life expectancies and lower quality of life than other smokers, the program proved more efficient than most other cessation programs. The ability to monitor a patient's metabolic status without the need of blood sampling would be of great importance to clinicians. As metabolic and cardiovascular diseases in patients with schizophrenia have gained much interest in recent years, the authors of this article investigated the usefulness of advanced statistical techniques for detecting patients' metabolic status, such as logistic regression, artificial neural networks, and support vector machines. They then compared these techniques to a simple decision tree based on only two variables, central obesity and elevated blood pressure. The study population included 202 patients with schizophrenia. The statistical models all yielded similar results with satisfying accuracies of about 80%. However, the authors found that the accuracy obtained by the very simple model that included only blood pressure outperformed more advanced classification schemes in a subset of patients without central obesity. The authors conclude that although so-called pattern recognition techniques bear high promise in improving clinical decision-making, the results should be presented with caution and preferably in comparison with a less complicated technique. Perinatal depression affects large numbers of women and has severe effects on both mother and child. Depression before and after birth has been largely studied in high-income countries where several risk factors have been identified. Human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, is considered to be an independent risk factor for depression. The association of HIV infection with depression suggests that areas with high HIV infection rates may also have high rates of depression. Since Africa has the world's highest rate of HIV infection and the majority of HIV-infected Africans are women, a systematic review of the prevalence of perinatal depression in African countries was undertaken to better understand the scope of the condition there. In research supported by the National Institutes of Health, the authors identified 11 studies that looked at suspected depression in HIV-infected pregnant women and 12 studies that looked at suspected depression in HIV-infected women in the postnatal period. Prevalence during both antenatal and postnatal time frames was high, with almost half of pregnant HIV-infected women and a third of HIV-infected women in the postnatal period having suspected depression. These rates are slightly higher than those seen in high-income countries. Very few studies use diagnostic tools, the gold standard for measurement, to determine cases of depression, making it possible that these rates are overestimated. No studies have specifically looked at incident perinatal depression in HIV-infected African women. Only one study identified risk factors for the development of depression in this population. 
The authors expressed concern over these results, given that identification and reduction in risk factors for perinatal depression in this population are key to developing management strategies to reduce prevalence rates. Although post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is associated with several physical illnesses, there are no systematic reviews or meta-analyses investigating its association with obesity. To examine this association in the literature to date, the authors of this article systematically searched the PubMed, Embase, Scopus, Web of Science, and ProQuest databases and conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis. They selected observational studies estimating obesity prevalence in samples of people with PTSD as well as in comparison groups without PTSD. Thirteen studies were eligible according to inclusion criteria. Individuals with PTSD were found to have 1.5 times the odds of having obesity than their non-PTSD counterparts. A large heterogeneity was found, and risk of publication bias was statistically significant. However, subgroup and sensitivity analyses, including only studies with the most accurate methods to assess obesity and PTSD, also confirmed the association between PTSD and obesity. Even given potential study limitations, individuals suffering from PTSD were found to be more likely, relative to controls, to suffer from obesity. The authors conclude that clinicians should regularly assess obesity among patients with PTSD. Individuals with this comorbidity should be targeted for intensive prevention and treatment focused on both disorders. Primary care for individuals at high risk for trauma exposure should probably focus on early monitoring and screening of adverse physical outcomes. Future research is needed to identify the role of unknown factors and mediators that might clarify the nature of this association. Psychiatric comorbidity is common and associated with poor outcome in children and adolescents with psychiatric disorders. Chromosome 22q11.2 deletion syndrome is a common genetic disorder associated with increased risk for various psychiatric disorders, notably schizophrenia. Despite its importance, psychiatric comorbidities in this syndrome have not been previously examined. In a study supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors of this article investigated the pattern of psychiatric comorbidities in 22q11.2 deletion syndrome and their associations with overall global functioning and neurocognitive performance. The study included 171 individuals with 22q11.2 deletion syndrome. Psychiatric diagnoses, global functioning, and neurocognitive performance were assessed. The investigators found that approximately half of participants had at least one psychiatric comorbidity. Psychosis spectrum features and anxiety disorders were most commonly comorbid with other disorders. In addition, global functioning was progressively reduced with increased comorbidity, and it was the poorest in those with psychosis spectrum features. Furthermore, 
All participants performed poorly on the computerized cognitive battery, regardless of psychiatric comorbidity. The authors conclude that psychiatric comorbidity is particularly common in individuals with 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome and is associated with decreased functioning. Notably, psychosis spectrum features and anxiety disorders are associated with increased impairment. Clinicians should pay particular attention to these domains during assessment and treatment. Major depressive disorder is associated with a high risk of recurrence. Cognitive reactivity, the mood-linked activation of dysfunctional cognitions, appears to be a risk factor for relapse. It remains unclear, however, whether dysfunctional cognitions or the reactivity of such cognitions to mild states of sadness is the factor that increases relapse risk. This offering reports a study from the Netherlands aimed to assess the predictive value of cognitive reactivity as measured by the Leiden Index of Depression Sensitivity, an easy-to-administer, self-report measure of cognitive reactivity. Cognitive reactivity and dysfunctional cognitions were measured in 116 outpatients who had experienced two or more major depressive episodes and were in remission at the start of follow-up. Course of illness and time to relapse were monitored for three and a half years. Depression sensitivity scores were associated with time to relapse, even after correcting for the number of previous major depressive episodes and concurrent depressive symptoms. The rumination subscale appeared to be a particularly strong predictor of relapse. Dysfunctional cognitions did not predict relapse. Every 20-point increase on the Leiden Index of Depression Sensitivity resulted in a 10% to 15% increase in risk of relapse. The authors note that future research should address whether psychological interventions can improve cognitive reactivity scores and thereby prevent depressive relapses. As the evidence base for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD grows, the need increases for clinicians to understand optimal approaches when providing care to trauma survivors and those with stress disorders. A group of researchers recently evaluated drug utilization trends among patients with PTSD in the post-conflict setting of Croatia. They then compared the patterns of drug use in 2002 and 2012 with current PTSD guidelines. The annual frequency of drug use was highest for anxiolytics, antidepressants, and hypnotics. During the 11-year study period, overall increases in drug utilization frequency were most prominent for hypnotics, antidepressants, and antipsychotics. The authors conclude that drug utilization trends in this post-conflict setting were predominantly inconsistent with current guidelines due to excessive benzodiazepine use. The authors further deduce that these drugs were being used mainly for their tranquilizing properties and for non-diagnostic specific symptoms. Promising rising trends in antidepressant use were not accompanied by a compensatory reduction in benzodiazepine use. 
Depressed patients and their clinicians are often faced with the question of whether to proceed with electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. Although ECT is considered the most effective treatment available for depression, about one-third of individuals do not respond. A National Institutes of Health-supported study analyzed data from 32 studies to determine which clinical features are robust predictors of ECT response. Two clinical features reliably predicted response to ECT, duration of the current depressive episode and medication failure in the current episode. Patients who subsequently responded to ECT had shorter depressive episodes with an average of about seven months, whereas patients who did not respond had episodes of about 14 months. Patients without a failed antidepressant medication trial in the current episode had a 70% chance of response compared to a 58% chance for those with at least one such medication failure. Patient characteristics traditionally thought to predict better ECT response, such as age, psychotic features, and melancholic features, were not likely to be clinically useful. The authors conclude that depressive episode duration and medication failure should be considered when counseling a patient about ECT. As this month's ASCP Corner offering, we are pleased to present an article adapted from an award lecture given by Dr. A. John Rush at the 2014 ASCP meeting. In it, he addresses the gaps between what practitioners know, need to know, and need to do. He explains that the gaps between research and practice leave much clinical decision-making to experience rather than evidence, which can directly impact patient outcomes. Dr. Rush considers various aspects of the issue and then proposes several suggestions to reduce these gaps. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. The primary outcome measure is the outcome that an investigator considers to be the most important among the many outcomes that are to be examined in the study. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at why the primary outcome needs to be defined at the time the study is designed and how to regard articles that do not state the primary outcome. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight three educational activities. Misdiagnosis of bipolar depression can create a cascade of negative outcomes for your patients. Read this CME activity, supported by educational grants from Synovian and Supernus to better understand the human cost of misdiagnosis and how to monitor depression in bipolar patients. What do you do when first-line depression treatment fails? Listen to this CME podcast, supported by an educational grant from Decatur, U.S. Region, and Lundbeck, to hear the experts discuss the case of Mrs. C., a 38-year-old married woman with depression who does not respond to initial antidepressant treatment. 
Next Step Strategies for Identifying the Cause of Non-Response and Tips for How to Best Monitor Patients are discussed. Given the prevalence of sleep disorders, too few sleep specialists are available. Therefore, other health care providers, especially primary care clinicians, need to know about the diagnosis of sleep disorders and the therapeutic options available to treat them. Take part in the CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals, to increase your ability to treat sleep disorders. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the October issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.